Good morning again, church. So thankful that you're here. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. Uh, If this is your first time with us, we have been uh, going through the Gospel of Luke, and this is our last sermon in the Gospel of Luke. So we've been walking through Luke for for many weeks. We started in the summer, uh, and we've just been kind of taking chapter by chapter and, and looking at what Uh, Luke shares, uh, and I think this is a really appropriate place to finish uh, before Advent starts next week. And so Advent uh, starts next week, and Advent is a season of the church year uh, where we kind of observe a time of expectant waiting and preparation, uh, both the celebration of the Nativity of Christ at Christmas and the return of the Second Coming. Uh, The Latin name uh, translated from the Greek, parousia, means coming or arrival. Advent is all about expectation, uh, waiting for uh, Christ to come again. We celebrate his first return. We celebrate the way that he lives in the lives of the believers, and then we wait for eschatological second return, the second coming. And so today in our text, we see uh, why this little baby born in Bethlehem, wrapped in swaddling clothes, right, laid in a manger, that wonderful Christmas scene. Today we see why he came, uh, why he robed himself in flesh And came and lived among his people, becoming in all ways like one of his created beings in order to endure and defeat temptation, sin, death, and the grave. I firmly believe before we can truly appreciate the wonder and the miracle that is Christmas, we have to cast our minds to Calvary, as we sang this morning, to really understand what's so beautiful about the Savior coming to die. And so, how do we get there to Calvary? What led Jesus to hang on this cruel Roman cross. We've been looking at his journey through all the areas surrounding Jerusalem, his ministry, the way that he's preached and healed and he's taught his disciples. So what led him to this Calvary, this cross? With just a quick examination of our text there in Luke 23, we see a common theme arise. Uh, The religious leaders talk about it. The Roman soldiers bring it up. Even the thieves crucified beside him address it. It was the issue of his kingship. And so uh, the question before us is the same question that they had before them. Is Jesus king of the Jews, God's anointed, the promised one, the Messiah, or was he simply a pretender? And of course, the issue of his kingship has been the issue from the very beginning in the gospel of Luke, right? I want to take you back there to just a, a moment to Gabriel's announcement. Remember Luke 1, 31, Gabriel comes to Mary to make this announcement. It's going to be on your screen, so you don't have to turn there. Luke 1, uh, 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Right? The very first announcement of his birth had to do with his kingship, his kingdom. And then as the... Remind you, as you go to the field of the shepherds, right, and the angels appear, and they make this proclamation in Luke 2, 10. They say, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And the title Christ, we're going to see later, is synonymous with king, Right? So we're going to see Christ the Lord, this king, is announced. And then, of course, Jesus grows and he comes on the scene proclaiming what? The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
right? John the Baptist introduces it, and then Jesus comes exercising his authority over disease, nature, and even death. And so this issue of kingship is, is all throughout Gospels. And this, listen, this is why he ends up on the cross. I was looking at it this week, and I realized I had never really thought about it this way. I was talking to Brittany. This is what he was put on trial for. This was what led him to the cross. Listen in Luke 22. Uh, verse 66, this is his first, so he's been betrayed by Judas, he's been brought before the, the Jewish Sanhedrin, and this is what it says, when the day came, the assembly of the elders and the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said, if I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer, right? And so this was what they, they, they questioned him about for, for a long time. And when they could not get an answer, or when he finally said, you have said what I, I, that I am him, they bring him before Pilate. This is what they say. This is their accusation in Luke 23. We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ. What does it say? A king. Luke 23. It's going to be on the screen in just a minute, I promise. <laughs> Luke 23, believe me, you just have to trust me in this one because it's, it's not up there. It says, uh, he himself uh, saying that he is Christ, a king, and Pilate asked him, are you king of the Jews, right? This is the central issue which the, the Sanhedrin examined him on, which Pilate examined him on, and then he gets sent to Herod. And Herod and his soldiers, it says in Luke 23, treat him with contempt. And we find in Matthew 27, which I think is going to be on the screen. At this point, I don't know. All right? Uh, I might have done the slides wrong. Matthew 27. And they stripped him uh, and put a scarlet robe on him and twisted a crown of thorns. They put it on his head and they put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him, and they took the reed, and they struck him on the head. And when they had thoroughly mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on and led him away to crucify him. At every one of these experiences, it is his issue of kingship that is brought up, right? The Sanhedrin, are you Christ, the king of the Jews? Before Pilate, are you the king of the Jews? Before uh, Herod, they, they mock him, right? The scarlet robe, that was the color of royalty, Right? So they cover him in this royal robe and then they twist a crown together with these long, uh, sharp thorns and they, they press it on his head and they give him a reed and, and they mock him. And so begins his agonizing suffering on this Roman cross over this issue of his kingship. And so let's turn our minds to the scene there at Calvary and we're going to examine it under three divisions this morning, the ridicule of a king, the repentance of a thief, and the reassurance of a savior. Let's go to Luke 23, verse 33. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king 
of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due rewards for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So that's the scene we're looking at this morning. In the, in the midst of this crucifixion, in the midst of all this ridicule, a thief uh, turns to Jesus and Jesus responds to him. And so as we dig in this morning, let's look first at the ridicule of a king. And so this is, this is where we find in this instance, we find, and nowhere is this more clear of why Jesus is on this cross than the inscription above his head. Right? This is a detail that is recorded for us in all four Gospels with just slightly verifying, varying details. Luke 28, 38 says, or 23, 38 says, there was a description over him, this is the king of the Jews. In Matthew and Mark, it says this was the charge written against him. And this, this is what the Romans did, right? When, when someone was considered so bad they had to be crucified, they would write a charge against them and they would nail it above their head so that everyone who walked by would not only see why the person was dying, but they would be discouraged from following suit, right? Like it was, it was a way to testify of what was the crime that put this person to death. So everyone that walked by saw this charge that Jesus was dying because he was the king of of the Jews, right? In John, we find out this detail about this inscription. It was Pilate who either wrote it or had it written because he found no reason to condemn him. And so in contempt of these Jewish religious leaders that had pushed him for his death, he wrote Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And he wrote it in Aramaic and he wrote it in Latin and he wrote it in Greek so that all could read it. So here's the proclamation above his head. The charge against him, Jesus, the king of the Jews. And listen, this is as much an ordained proclamation by God as it is anything else. Like, whatever the reason is, whether it was meant as an insult or a dig at the Jews or a mocking of Jesus, God's purpose was carried out. There is no mistake as to why Jesus is on the cross. He is God's anointed Messiah, chosen one, king of the Jews. And that is why he is on the cross. Why could the crowd not see it? Why could the religious leaders not understand it? Because listen, they had misunderstood, right? They had missed the truth that Christ had proclaimed when he had told them, I'm going to be turned over. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be lifted up, right? He had been telling them about his death and why it had to be carried out. And as it was a fulfillment of his mission, they thought the promised king would come and overthrow Rome. Right and deliver them from their oppressors in this mighty victory, and he would restore Jew, uh, the Jews to this nation that would rule over Gentiles, and this was the king that was supposed to come, and then Jesus comes, and he's nothing like they expected. See, they saw the scriptures that referenced a conquering king, but they missed the ones who depicted a suffering servant, and they failed to reconcile the two into one person, See, the king had been with them, among them, and was now putting, being put to death for it. But because he was not what they expected or they wanted, they rejected him. They had nothing but contempt for him, which is easily seen in the ridicule of him. And so let's look at the ridicule that he experiences on the cross. First, religious leaders. Verse 35, uh, the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. 
Let him save himself if he is Christ of God, his chosen one. The Reformed Expository Commentary says it this way. These men thought that in order for someone to bring salvation, he would have to win a glorious triumph. What sort of king gets killed, they thought? What, what sort of Christ gets crucified? If Jesus could not save himself from this publicly shameful and disgraceful death, they reasoned, how could he easily save anyone at all? They so easily dismissed all that he had already done. Like, don't miss that, right? They say he saved others. Like, the evidence for that was overwhelming. Lazarus was alive. Blind men saw, right? Children had been raised from the, and given back to their mothers. Like, like, this is impossible to not. He has saved others. But in their minds, if he could not overcome this, he was no savior at all. If he was who he says he was, then there, he would, there'd be no way he would die on this Roman cross. Like, how wrong they were. Like how, how they missed his ministry as the sacrificial lamb laying his life down for the people. Like here he is doing what he came to do and they mocked him. It wasn't just religious leaders, though. The crowd and Mark says the crowd joins in and they say, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from that cross. And either taking their cues from the Pharisees or in their own contempt, they gathered and took shots at Jesus as well as they passed by. They remembered that what he said, but they remembered it a little wrong. They said, you said you would destroy the temple. What Jesus said was destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said that it took our fathers 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to build it in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. What they didn't understand was what he had said is destroy this temple and I will raise it up again was happening in front of their eyes. His temple, they were destroying it. And in three days he would restore, he would build it again. He would come back to life, right? right? This is, it's happening before their eyes, but all they can see is this man said he was so powerful and now he looks so powerless. And so they ridicule him. Soldiers joined in. Roman tradition says there were five men that carried out crucifixions. They were, they were part of the, the official crucifixion Roman uh, squad, and they would, they would carry it out, and they each had their jobs, and so they joined in as well. They mocked him, coming up, offering this sour wine, and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. This is just carrying on from the mocking that began in his trial. Notice how it all revolves around his kingship, right? They mocked him for it. They robed him and, and crowned him with thorns, and now they're offering him wine and, and mocking him, saying, if you are this king of the Jews, save yourself. And all of this makes sense, right? The religious leaders got what they wanted. The crowd saw this weak Jewish man being nailed to the cross. The Roman soldiers, this was their job. But the thieves, nailed on crosses next to him, on his left and his right, join in. Struggling for air themselves. See, crucifixion, you would hang, and you had to, you had to struggle and pull and push yourself up just to get a breath. And they used that breath to rail against Christ. The Bible uses that word rail, and it literally means blaspheme. And we're told in Luke that one of the criminals did this, but in Matthew and Mark, we find that in the beginning, both joined in. And the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him in the same way. And in Mark, those who were crucified with him also reviled him. They cursed him. And the common theme is, if you are the Christ, the king of the Jews, save yourself. And in the case of the thieves, save us too. 
That is, if you are a king, get us off these crosses. Don't miss in this scene, the king of the world was ridiculed for allowing himself to be crucified in the very fulfillment of his mission and purpose. It's a heartbreaking scene to behold. Because we know, as Jesus said, any, at any point, he could have stopped it. At any point, he could have called angels. He could have taken himself off the cross, but rather he stayed there. And from the very beginning, he cried out, Father, forgive them. Don't hold this against them. This is the way the Son of Man must go. Don't hold it against them. To them, though, listen, to them that reviled him, he said nothing. Nothing. He stayed silent against the accusations of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He stayed silent against the charge of the crowd. He stayed silent against the soldiers. He stayed silent against the thieves. He offered no rebuttal, no argument, just as he had done before the council and Pilate's questioning and Herod's mock trial. But somewhere in between the beginning of the crucifixion and this moment towards the end, something happened to one of the thieves that caused him to see Jesus differently, to change his attitude towards Jesus. And having cried out to him, Jesus finally responds, not to ridicule, not to blasphemy, but to repentant request from a dying man. That is the first time Jesus responds on the cross. So let's go. Let's look at that. The repentance of a thief. And so we've seen the ridicule of a king and the repentance of the thief. Now uh, let's look at the repentance of the thief. First of all, let's acknowledge that where he started was, he started as one ridiculing the king. We're told in Matthew and Mark that it was both thieves, a plurality of, of thieves there, that were ridiculing him. And we're not told what changed his mind. Perhaps it was the way Jesus surrendered to his crucifixion. Perhaps it was the way he cried out to the Father to forgive the very ones that crucified him. Maybe it was the way he let all their insults unanswered. I imagine him at some point going silent himself. The former words he had been saying all of a sudden, leaving a bad taste in his mouth. He quit ridiculing. So oftentimes when I'm getting ready for a sermon, I'll ask Brittany, what, what questions do you have about this text? What, what are things that you, you, you want to be answered from this text? And she said, I want to know what changed the thief. I said, don't we all? It's not in there. It doesn't tell us. But the more I thought about it, and the more I studied, the more I think that I have an answer. The answer is God did. God drew him to himself by the power of the Spirit. God opened his eyes and his heart to the reality of who Jesus was. And as he had done for the disciples, among others in Jesus' ministry, he opened his eyes for him to proclaim and see that this was the Christ. Indeed, the Bible says that no man can come to the Father unless God draw, or draws them, or Christ, till God draws them to them. Somewhere in the midst of this gory, agonizing, cruel crucifixion, the thief looked over at a man on the center of the cross, and he no longer saw a fellow criminal. He no longer saw someone getting what he deserved. He saw Jesus in a new light, which led him to rebuke the other thief as he continued hurling insults at Jesus. Do you not fear God? Or better, do you not even fear God? Like, here at the end of your life, suffering a death for the life that you have lived, do you have no thought to the things of God? Do you have no reverence or fear for what comes next? And then he makes his own confessionary statement. 
And I want to look at his confession under four parts. This brief confession that's so short, but it models for us what it looks like to repent and turn to Jesus. The first part is his own guilt, verse 41. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due rewards of our deeds. The man knew that his sin in him, he was receiving what was due him. He deserved no better. He knew that he deserved to be put to death for his crimes, and he willingly admitted that it was just. So not only did he see his own guilt, he saw Jesus' innocence. But this man has done nothing wrong. That is, Jesus did not deserve to be on that cross. He committed no wrong deserving of this death. The only thing above his head was this is the king of the Jews. There was no crime. There was no, Jesus had not fought. He had surrendered and he understood in this moment that Jesus didn't deserve to die. Now, we don't, we don't need to stretch that to think that he knew Jesus was sinless, but he knew in this moment that what was happening to Jesus was undeserved. He didn't need to die. He didn't deserve to die. It was, he was innocent in that sense. John Calvin once said, in the opening words of his Institutes of the Christian Religion, he said this, nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. And by that standard, the convert on the cross was in possession of true wisdom, for he had come to know both God and himself. He said, I'm guilty. I deserve this. That man is not. He admitted his condition. He saw Jesus' innocence. And the third part was he plead for mercy. Jesus, remember me. Here is the simplest and most heartfelt cry for mercy. Not remember that my good outweighed my bad, right? Not remember in my final moments I turned to you. Not remember when no one else stood with you, I stood with you. He said simply, remember me. This is a plea of mercy to the one who had recognized that this man on the cross was no mere man, but the Messiah, King of the Jews. So he recognized his own guilt, Jesus' innocence, his plea for mercy, and finally Jesus' kingship. He said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The thief believed that this man was the promised king, that he was the Christ, the anointed one, the one that was going to be sent to save and redeem all of Israel. Listen, this thief believed that Jesus was king, and that king had the right to welcome people into his kingdom if he so chose. So his hope was in the grace of Christ. Christ, remember me. Don't, don't miss one thing, though. Like, look up here for a second. If you're taking notes, just take a break for a second. This was not a risen Christ. Not robed in white, not triumphant over the grave, right? Not resurrected. This was a bloody, beaten man that was beyond all recognition, still with thorns or, or scars from his head, or ripped out his flesh, nailed to a cross, naked and ashamed, and this man saw a king. Don't miss the faith he exercised. We get to see a risen Savior in his defeat over the grave, but this thief saw a dying man, and, and God told him in his heart, that's my one. That's my Christ. The faith that he exercised is amazing. 
It's a beautiful expression of faith. We so often overlook because we know the rest of the story. But listen, in this moment, the thief only had hope. Oh, that's it. This is all my hope that you would remember me when you come into your kingdom. And I wrote this statement. The thief had only hope until he had so much more. Because Jesus finally responded. Jesus gives the only responsive statement on the cross to which we turn to now. He gives reassurance. The reassurance of a Savior. Now, this was not the only thing he said on the cross. We have recorded for us across the four Gospels seven sayings of the cross. We call them seven words of the, of the cross or of Calvary. He said, and, and we've already read, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. In Luke, he says what he says to the thief, which we're going to look at in a moment. And at the very end in Luke, he says, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And then in Matthew and Mark, we were, the, the statement recorded is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then in John, we find much more personal expressions. Woman, behold thy son, behold thy mother. I thirst, and his final words, it is finished. None of that is in response to anybody else. But this one statement, he turns to the thief and he says, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. And so let's just look at that statement for a second. Jesus starts with the word truly. And this word is so interesting because it was transliterated directly from Hebrew into Greek, then into Latin, into English. It is a universal word. It's the word amen. Uh, this is what Jesus says, amen. And when you use it at the beginning of a sentence, it meant what I'm about to say is trustworthy or true. When you use it at the end, like we do, it's an agreeance that what was said was true. So when you say amen, you're saying that's true, that's right, right? But when you say it at the beginning, you say what I'm about to say is trustworthy. What I'm about to say is true. So Jesus turns to this man and says, trust me when I say to you today, Literally on this day, at this present time, you will be with me. And the idea is you will be present with me in paradise. And the root word for paradise has this idea of a garden like Eden, right? Like the Garden of Eden was a paradise. This is the place where the Jews believed they would one day dwell with God. This word is used in a few times in the New Testament to refer to what we would call heaven. The idea is that God is ultimately going to redeem not just people, but all of creation. He's going to create a new heaven and a new earth, and it will be paradise, for he will dwell in the midst of it, right? It will be Eden restored. Once again, men and women will walk with God, right? This is what the Jews were counting on, and Jesus turns to this dying thief. And in one short statement, assured the man that not only would he remember him, he would be with him. Not only would he save him, he would do it immediately, wholly and personally. Although he deserved death on a cross by man's law and eternal death by God's law, he would be welcomed into everlasting life by none other than Jesus himself. This is why Paul later said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. This is the assurance of every believer when they pass from this life to the next. Too often, this man's conversion is held up as evidence 
that it's never too late to convert, right, to deathbed conversions. You know, at the last moment, I'm going to repent and get right with God. But listen, that misses the whole point. Our takeaway shouldn't be, it's never too late to turn to Jesus, and so we put it off. Our takeaway should be that we have an awesome, gracious, forgiving, wonderful Savior who made a way for us to experience everlasting life even when we don't deserve it. That's the takeaway. Jesus told this thief, I'm going to welcome you into paradise myself. Notice that both thieves asked Jesus for something. The one for immediate and temporal health, he said, save us from the cross. The other asked for grace and mercy when he passed on from this life, and Jesus only answered one of them. He only responded to one. One thief just wanted to be free from the the punishment. He wanted to be set free, and one realized that His hope in Jesus was for the next life. Listen, what made all the difference between these two thieves was one admitted that Jesus was king, put his faith in his ability to save him, and asked him for mercy. This man was on the brink of death and headed for an eternity apart from any goodness that he had taken for granted his whole life. But in a moment, in a blink of an eye, Jesus promised not only to change his destination, but his relationship with himself. He said, you will be with me in paradise. In just a few short verses, we're going to see Jesus crying out his last words and taking his final breath. And then that thief, in just a short time, Roman guards are going to come and they're going to break his leg so that he dies of asphyxiation. And when he died, when he took his last struggling breath, because he placed his faith in Jesus, he was welcomed into everlasting peace just as Jesus had promised him. So the question is, what do we do with this now? Luke has painted this picture of a Savior and two choices Two guilty men, one who rejected and one who accepted. Listen, as many preachers have said before, one alone was saved upon the cross that none might despair, and only one that none might presume. That is, the converted man shows us there's none too far gone to be saved. It shows us clearly that salvation is by faith because of grace. We are justified by faith alone. The other shows us to be near to Jesus is not enough. If I will not admit that he is my king and bow my head and my heart to him and ask him to humbly save us, I will perish and never experience his kingdom. The one thing that is undeniable when you read the Bible is that it teaches that one day everyone will acknowledge the kingship of Christ. That one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is, everyone will ultimately recognize that he is king of kings and lord of lords. There is only one difference. Some do it this side of eternity and experience salvation and the promise of of, of relationship, and others will be forced to admit what they so strongly rejected in this life, that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he is the rightful king of all of creation. Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the king sent by the Father to save mankind. 
nowhere in Scripture is a choice to reject or accept that so clear as it is here in Luke 23. Two thieves on either side of the cross. One chooses his own way, and when he dies, he receives no reception into paradise, no presence. And the other has this promise that when he takes his last breath, he will be face to face with Jesus. That is the decision before every person who encounters the cross. That is the choice of Calvary. This morning we sang quite a bit about coming to Calvary and at Calvary, and, and we've cast our mind to that. And so there's really only one thing left to do, and we're going to do it quickly. We're not going to take a lot of time here because, listen, you've heard enough to know whether or not you believe Jesus is king.